Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Tim, you kind of inspired me. I, I got up and reread Bainton. And, I, you know, Bainton can just kind of drop these things uh, that are so subtle. And I hope you appreciate him because he says very profound things in kind of a Soto voice. He says, the whole scale of the classical virtues was thereby altered. Material valor disappeared from the pages of the New Testament. Cicero would have said, by valor, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In the New Testament, the victory which overcomes the world is faith. What what he's saying there very subtly is, oh, there is just a transformative moment here in the whole understanding. It's an understanding that's not just a shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think it's a shift in human history. The way that we do valor, you know, just think of just the word, the way you have valor and honor is through some form of militarism. And that's being shifted up. We're going to have to go back and reread everything, not just in the Old Testament. We all have the, I, I grew up, I don't know if you all did, you know, just the very, the very sensibility, you know, a kind of physical bravery and honor. And at its heart, first of all, I think it's universal. And that universal value is being undone. Okay, because I actually wrote down a quote, and I think that's what it was. Christianity brought to social problems, not a detailed code of ethics or a new political theory, but a new scale of values. It started to bring up some things that maybe I questioned, like, you know, the centurion coming to Jesus, and we don't really hear Jesus talk to him about his Roman allegiance or his military situation. So it wasn't a... um, a moment for Jesus to instill these rights and wrongs into him, but it was to enter him into this new way of existing and being through faith in him and through him. So I just, I like that because it helped me, not that I have to have an answer for like, we don't know what happened to the centurion afterwards. We don't know what his walk was like or what ended up going on in his life, but just that idea that it creates a a culture of values as opposed to these lists of um, answers for situational ethics, I guess. And he, do, he does point out there the shift, you know, that Eros would have been the primary value in both the Old Testament, but also in a Greek sensibility. I'm just going to add to that, Paul, like just him mentioning the whole idea of virtues being altered. And the word virtue, V-I-R, we think of, um, comes from the virility and um, it's all tied, of course, to male dominance in terms of our ability to reproduce. And all of this kind of language is bound up with the idea of how virtue then was manliness, you know, man up, be a man. And, and, it, and it's taken us almost 2,000 years. I mean, we're still struggling with the whole patriarchy thing. But this was kind of the start, the unleashing, the breaking of this idea that men can, you know, boys can be boys, which now is very much a very, uh, an offensive thing to say because, well, of course, he's a man. He does that sort of stuff. Well, my goodness, what we've seen in the last five years in the change 
but it's taken us a long time. Like it yeah. wasn't like these ideas that Paul and, and, and that we find in the New Testament were suddenly adapted by the culture and everyone, yes, that's, that's a really wonderful thing. We would replace the word virtue with the fruits of the spirit, for instance. That would be our list if we're going to have a, a list because people love to make lists back in that, those days and they're in the New Testament, but our list would be the fruit of the spirit, which is quite different from the four virtues. Well, I guess then the you get the cardinal virtues and the six. And yeah. They kind of do expand on, on Christ's, you know, the passions and all that. Baton nails it. I don't know if any of you got to listen. Jason gave us the link to Stanley Harawas. And one of the resources that he talks about, strangely, you know, you would think the last guy in the world you would turn to would be a lieutenant colonel writing on killing. But the thing that he's hitting upon that is quite interesting that I think is is a, a confirmation. You know, we're, we're created for peace. We're created for the fruits of the Spirit. We're created to be in the image of God. And unfortunately, I think that in this, this system of values that we have in a Hebraic or in a Greek, it is a kind of valorization of as you said, Tim, a kind of male virility, a, a kind of the kind of notion of you know, well, valor is connected with Me Mexico is always the great example, Alan. We know you Mexicans got all of that machismo. That what they've discovered, in fact, in World War II, the General Marshall or somebody, he actually began to survey the troops uh, coming out of battle. He determined that between 15 and 20 people out of 100 people, 100 soldiers on the firing line, given an opportunity, line. they weren't shooting their guns. They weren't shooting them at all. And of course, among the ones that were shooting, they may not have been shooting at the enemy. They were shooting above the firing line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes on in the book to show that that can be confirmed again and again from a Civil War they actually discovered, I can't remember the battle, but they discovered thousands of firearms. And the thing that they were shocked is they were loaded. Most of them they found were loaded and that they not only were loaded once, many of them were loaded all the way up to the brim. That is, they just kept loading their guns and they would probably pretend like they were shooting, but they'd just load it again. Nobody, you know, they really weren't shooting each other. There's a sadness to that that they'd almost rather die than kill, that that's built in. And the general gets that. When I was teaching Life of Jesus, I frequently would emphasize, especially when we got to the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus was teaching about violence in ways that we don't think about as Americans. The damage violence does. The method of the kingdom is being uh, antithetical to the kind of damage that violence does. The damage it does to soldiers where Hauerwas says, I actually feel great compassion. You're not a pacifist because you're anti-soldier. You're, you're, you're nonviolent because you're pro-soldier. I support the troops so much, I don't want them to die. Yeah. I remember saying this, and I was talking about the number of, of men that come home and kill themselves. The rate of suicide for men coming home from the front or from a from war is higher than it's ever been. Or And in a class of about 10 people, there were several that just got incredulous about it. They know what they're getting into. That's stupid. That's not, that's not what's going on. And the only person that was on my side was a guy who had served active duty in Iraq. He's the only one that went, no, 
he's right. I think we might ought to consider that if we're going to talk about nonviolence, to borrow on the military language, there are allies to be had among folks that are military or ex-military. There's a reality that they've accepted about it, that our easy culture that glorifies militarism ignores, that they have not been able to, they couldn't ignore. That was the colonel's point. He said, yeah, learning about killing from the movies is sort of like learning about sex from uh, pornography. Uh, it doesn't tell you anything. It tell you the mechanics. And actually, he's using a lot of sex language because, of course, sex and death, the whole Freudian revolution around uh, human sexuality, his point is, oh, but we've never explored, we've now done it with sexuality, but we have yet to explore the reality of what the cost. It's not the cost of laying down your life. It's actually the cost of killing that is the most harmful. So much so, as you said, Jason, most men would rather just go out and get shot. And, and not to take away from the fear or not to, to, to reduce that. One of the pieces of evidence they, they, they give for that is when they realized that that what was ha- was what was happening on a firing line because you could sort of hide there was safety in numbers. They switched to the platoon system because you are more likely to kill to save your brother. So they use a sort of family system. The psychology of it is disturbing. How manipulative it is. I wonder how much more damage is done. But that's, I think, what you see in World War II and the Korean and Vietnam Wars is the platoon system was used to make sure that men were engaging. And he comes up with some shocking statistics that are nearly mechanical. That is, you're exposed to this much violence, 95% are going to have, they're going to have PTSD. And if you don't have PTSD, you're a sociopath, which is even more frightening. In other words, part of the thing the, the military does is they want to weed out the natural-born killers. Uh, they want normal people, but it is the normal people that are going to suffer. He says an interesting thing. When it comes right down to it, most all soldiers are conscientious objectors. <laughs> okay, that's right. It's just that you don't know it up to that moment because we're surrounded by a value system, we're willing to send our sons and daughters off. May, you know, it used to be sons, but now it's sons and daughters to be sacrificed. That we glorify this thing. I mean, this is would be my point about all sin is that we're so deceived by the value system of the world that we, it's really hard to penetrate this reality of what's happening and just say the truth. I don't think people's ever said this about the the nature of warfare and killing. Paul, I, I thought of that lecture a couple of years ago when my daughter graduated from high school and I went up to Indianapolis to, to uh, watch. Their high school is huge, so they had to rent an entire conference center in Indianapolis. They bring up on stage all of the people, all of the kids that are going to serve in the military. And there was a moment that we're all clapping for them because of the great sacrifice that they're getting ready to make. And it struck me that as a whole, as a community, how was this much different from pagan rituals of bringing up the young children that are getting ready to be sacrificed? When I thought of it that way, it, it, I, I felt, found it very sobering. This was the way I was raised. You know, I was raised on gun smoke and have gun will travel and bonanza. 
all just glorifying. You know, in all those shows, it was the same message. As a little kid, I really absorbed the message that, you know, you, there's one way to deal with bad guys. You shoot them. The quote that the colonel comes up with, that life then comes down to, you know, you got to have a good woman and you got to kill a bad man. You know, sex and death. That's the, the meaning that we tend to gravitate to. And death actually plays a larger role. The sex, we get kind of jaded. You can only do so much of that. But the, the war and just the endless movies about violence points to that this is actually the way that we construct meaning and value. Having said that, Alan, can you explain to us the image on the Mexican flag? The eagle uh, eating the snake on top of a cactus is what's supposed to be. It was like a prophecy of where to build the city. They would see that image where they see that this eagle devouring the snake on top of the cactus. That's where they were supposed to build the city and start their civilization from there. I can't say the name of the god. It's an Tenochtitlan. It becomes the name of the city, which is where the pyramids are in Mexico City. It is bad, a bad place where to build because the entire city of Mexico city it's built on top of pretty much a lake <laughs> so it, a lot of the concrete sinks <laughs> every year on our history books the way it is mostly explained is that we were these you know these group this group of people who were pacifists and then Catholicism came in and brought in the gospel through violence which I mean is true they basically write it as if Catholicism was interrupting our peaceableness. <laughs> But in reality, even that symbol, it's reflecting basically our inner violence because it was that group of people was actually the most violent in the area. So in this prophecy, it was not just about where they were building the city. It was about, you know, we're building the city here at the very center of the country, basically, of the land, so we can start conquering those around us. And so the human sacrifices were made specifically from the other tribes they were conquering because they were the evil conquering those snakes. <laughs> so that's pretty much the image. It's not written like that in most of our history books, but it is what was happening. Even in, in, this, in the city of Tenochtitlan, you can see a huge road in the middle and you see the pyramids on the sides and one at the very end. Well, that whole whole road, it's called the, uh, the road of the dead. That's where you would walk the human sacrifice for the period. It's all built on human sacrifice. The same woman that wrote another book that Howard was referenced, I began looking up articles that she had written, and she writes about the Mexican flag. But actually, there's a display, I can't remember the university, that a, a Mexican art or a Hispanic artist, I'm not sure what it is. But he does a history of the American civilization, meaning the whole continent. And each panel is just another form of sacrifice, beginning with Aztec sacrifice, you know, where they cut out the heart and ending with American nationalism, flag draped coffin, which is actually, I think, a, as we know from Gerard, but just looking around us, that civilization is built upon this notion of, of sacrifice, that that is the value system of human civilization, that Bainton is, is pointing out, oh, but this shift. In that city in particular, it's, uh, his name is uh, Miklan. I think in the PBI uh, blog, there's 
There's one blog where I talk a little bit about that and all the trials. That's basically our civilization. It's, it's all built on the human sacrifice. So everything in the flag symbolizes pretty much that. What, one thing to, to consider, I think, about, about nationalism, what's insidious about it, it's got a reputation for being secular. It's not a religion. But it acts just like a religion. That's why people think that they can do it. Not, not many Christians think that they can worship the Aztec gods and do Christianity. But they do think that they can have a flag. And it's one of the things that Hauerwas says in the lecture is one of the reasons that it's important to get the flag out of the chancel is not just that it's idolatry. It's that it's such a powerful symbol of sacrifice that it competes in people's minds with the sacrifice of the cross. But the religious implications are, of nationalism are huge. Once you've spent much time thinking these things through, I think the, the religiousness of the system, it's hard to unsee after you've really taken it in. You say tie in that nationalism, I was thinking again on page 59 where Bainton talks about the three interpretations. He's got the Anabaptists, of course, who are right, and then he's got the Lutherans, and then he's got what was espoused by Calvin, but was the Old Testament theocracy. And to me, I at least see this huge connection between that idea of the theocracy and nationalism, the whole idea of they're just taking the, the, the whole notion of how God is with us and, you know, everyone who God hates, we hate. It's all tied up very much with that re the connection to what's going on, what happened through the whole, your p former president. We won't, we won't say his name anymore like they do with other criminals. Yeah. He who shall not be named, yes. It's all connected. It feels like it's all connected, but the reality is it's the same problem being said differently throughout history. Paul, I think you said to me one time, we were talking about Descartes, and um, I had been studying Descartes, and I remember you know, saying, you know, Descartes where it all went wrong. He tries to found everything on human reason. And you said, you know, that's sin. That's what happens yeah. in the garden. We're always doing the same problem. It's always the same cycle. What the cross undoes throughout history, people are always trying to go back to it. The problems that Israel has that the prophets are, are trying to address in Israel's religion are the same problems we're still talking about that have happened in Christianity the real issue was just sacrificing to a God so that he could slake his bloodlust so he could forgive us so that we could go on uh, killing each other and we could end up going, going to heaven someday. The idea of being the favorite people of God, that, that having a, I think instead of a theocracy, it's a meritocracy. It's the same principles, just secularized, I think, to make it a little bit more insidious so that people think they can do Christianity and do this. But it, it's always the same problems over and over again. I tried to say that, and I, I felt I was unsuccessful. I did the blog. I was taking Howard's phrase that Christ has abolished war, and I added war, the war within and the war without. That is, that war is sin. But what I was trying to do is to say not just that war is sin, but that sin is war. That is, that it's always the same structure. Maybe the Cartesian cogito is a neat way to say, you're reifying, I think, therefore I am. You're reifying the self. Think of Jesus' statement, which I think just captures it. He who would save his life will lose it. I think what we're describing, whether we're talking philosophically 
although we're talking nationalism, are salvation systems. And in these salvation systems, then you come up with some way of, you know, it's a boxed-in value. It's a closed system that generates its own values. Clearly, the memorializing of the dead soldier, the nationalism, the thing that is being reified, the nation-state, this reminded me so much of ancestor worship in Japan. The statement we talked about last week, that truth is the first victim of war. And why is it the first victim? Because you can't tell the truth that a war was wrong or futile after you've invested human life in it. Once you've sacrificed to the God, you, in a sense, create the reality of that God. You create the system, whether it's the God of nationalism or the God of idolatry. Hauerwas uses the, the story of Porkchop Hill in Korea. It was in Korea, yeah. It was in yeah. Korea. And uh, they had a movie about it years ago. They're trying to capture a hill because of its st strategic significance. And then they have to keep, for political reasons, giving the hill back and then capturing it. And finally, they're trying to defend this hill. And the war is ending. They're trying to decide whether or not they should reinforce the troops up here or let them die in this battle because if they reinforce they'll they'll certainly lose even more people to try to save the few people that are still holding the hill and the decision is made to reinforce because at some point you can't in order to continue honoring the people who've died you've got to continue dying uh, getting people killed it's a system that has to continue because if you at any point come back and say, we shouldn't have done that, then at that point you have to say, all those people died for something that was, it reifies the injustice of why they died in the first place. Vietnam was such a, a backbreaker for the United States. It was the first war we could come back and, and where public opinion was so strongly set against it from the beginning you couldn't justify uh, it, it. There wasn't this glorious, well, we saved the Jews from concentration camps or we saved freedom in Europe. We lost and we couldn't really even identify why we were there in the first place. So it was a morale breaker. The Vietnam War may have been the first modern war that people said, these people aren't heroes. They, you know, the soldiers come back and call them baby killers. This too then, you know, Vietnam was interesting because it was also a war in which they had taken account of the fact that soldiers were not shooting at the enemy and they changed the training so that actually Vietnam, you begin to have a much higher kill rate, which means you have a much larger psychological impact. And it happens to be the war, the modern war that people said publicly, these soldiers came back and were spit upon, you know, reviled. You know, what would normally happen, you would be receive medals, ribbons, you know, which is very important. You know, you, you receive that, which reminds me, you know, what, what we're describing here is a system of shame and honor, you know, shame and honor. The way that you rescue people from shame is through those honors that we would give, uh, the medals. We, we talk about guilt, but actually the, the powerful thing the most powerful psychological thing that you mentioned, Jason, 
that soldiers going into war, certainly there's fear, but you know, the fear they kind of, you kind of have fear and you get over that, but actually it's the, the idea that you're going to let down your buddies is a more driving, you know, that in some way you're going to, you're going to shame yourself uh, in front of your platoon or in front of your, your friends. Vietnam, it, it was a terrible psychological word. Well, as we're all, you know, all these wars, you know, if you go to a VA hospital that any generation, you know, if world, from World War One, Korea, they're just filled up with these guys that never really get over it. I feel kind of like a coward talking about it and studying about it and things like that. Like in my head, I, I get it and I wrestle with it, but it's tough not to be tempted to live in the tension that that creates. Like you can't fully remove yourself from this system that the world works in and still stay connected to the people that you feel like you should be serving and loving and being a former youth minister, just being friends with people in our, in our community and like them celebrating their children being sent off into the military, like right off the bat, like that's the achievement. And internally I mourn, but I don't say anything. I don't, you you know, stand up to challenge that. Like I want to be able to stay in their life to have a positive influence. And when that moment or opportunity comes up, then maybe I can be there to, you know, do whatever might be needed in the situation. But like, I, I feel like I don't, I don't follow this way um, perfectly. And maybe I'm just, you know, stumbling my way through like everybody does, but I like to wrestle with it. I like to, you know, have these conversations about it and to learn about it. Um, But putting it into practice is a lot more difficult than I would like to admit. Trenton, I just feel the need to empathize with that. I was preaching this to a church where they had kids in the military. How are was because Howard Watts can get away with saying all kinds of language that I say at home, but I don't say in public. But um, yeah, <laughs> I know, Tim, you're so disappointed. But um, <laughs> he says the real trick in, in doing nonviolence is that we've got to do it in a way where we're not pretentious assholes. We don't shout baby killer at soldiers. That's not fair to them. The tension's in the New Testament. I mean, I, I've had conversations with friends about the about Cornelius and Acts. And well, they baptized Cornelius. End of story. Now what? We don't know. There's just tension still there in that. I don't know what that looks like. In fact, Kreider's book, he talks about some traditions in the early church. They assumed that people would leave the military. Some they assumed people would take up other roles in the military there isn't a clean answer to it but whatever we do you've got to find a way to be peaceful with people who are in the military and and the in the other side i of that is to always acknowledge that this is not something that does not implicate us as well i work for a state university we have a huge military presence in the institution I live in this country, I pay taxes in this country, and I am a part of everything that this country does. So I, have, I am as implicated in the warring nature of our culture as anybody else. And so if you can go at it from, by saying, you know, here's what I think uh, that the gospel is wanting us to be and realize that it may feel like I'm here and you're over here. We've understood the gospel differently we are not untainted by this right, right. by this place
Yeah. We are implicated in every little thing. And I am just as violent. I am relentlessly violent in my heart. Yeah. You, what you said, Trent, I just was like, I ha that's where I've been for yeah. about 10 years. If you put it in a missionary context, how do you explain to Japanese that it's not dishonoring their dead to become Christian? In other words, you have to be able to nuance that in such a way. And on this issue, I think the same thing is true, that you can't do this thing like you're not yourself implicated in it. We're all implicated in this, this thing. And so to dishonor or to do this in an unkind way, this would be the equivalent of going to a Buddhist or Shinto shrine, you know, with a, a megaphone and saying, you idiots, we would never do that. And so too on this, you're trampling on people's religion. This is their religion. On what, what they consider sacred. Anytime you're going to trample on something someone considers sacred, you better be awful careful about it. Yeah. And I, I'm a hypocrite about that. I, I like the idea too of not um, excluding myself from the, you know, from the system or whatever, even though I would say I'm a part of a different kingdom. It gives, I guess it gives me that I have some responsibility in this as well. It gives me a sense of humility then as I approach those people, that it's not me against them or anything like that, but that, right. that I get to carry that into that. That's, well, I mean, how does the apostle Paul, I mean, he's an apostle for crying out loud. When he describes himself, he, he as he say, well, I'm the greatest of sinners. He doesn't look down on folks who are lost. And re-understanding what we mean when we say lost, it's not, you know, hopeless. It's really completely confused, really not understanding, blindly grasping in the dark for what's right in front of them. That helps. And I, I hope that I hope that you find some piece about that. I may be the only person in the, our group here that was part of the military. Uh, oh, come on. I was a chaplain. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to imagine. It's hard to imagine. Guilty, guilty by association. <laughs> I had not worked this out. I was in my 20s. And okay. I, How long did you serve, Paul? I, it was a long career. I had a long military career. Uh, it was 90 days. <laughs> uh, I did the training. I did the training. And even in the training, my body was smarter than my brain. I just felt wrong about it. You know, I understood that, the, you know, what's happening in that situation. You're wearing the crosses. And, of course, you're putting a kind of Christian stamp of approval just by your presence. I begin to feel uncomfortable with that. But of course, it would only take me 20 years to figure out why. I mean, that's certainly not where I started out as, you know, a kid in the Christian life. But by the time you go through, you know, you're raised in Texas and you go to Bible college, you're thoroughly saturated. You probably don't know who Cecil Todd was in Revival Fires. It was patriotism fused with Christianity. That's where I was raised. Uh, to get out of that, it's very difficult. I'm curious about New Zealand as far as patriotism and religion. It's a real melting pot down here of different cultures. Um, of course, you got like the history of the, the Maoris being the, the original people who live in New Zealand, but then um, white Europeans, and then right now, like there's so many different nationalities represented in high percentages that it's not, it's quite a unique place, I'd say. 
And so we don't really have one culture. It's just so many different large groups. Um, like the amount of people here from the islands is massive, a massive percentage. So I think rather than having like a, um, a long history, like you guys over in America, I think we're quite a young country made up of such a diverse group. And how that sort of plays out, I guess, um, like military is just almost a non-event here. We got no jet planes. Those were decommissioned about 50 years ago, I think, you know, and we've got a pretty hopeless military aside from like mission or sort of UN work. Sort of just a look across the ditch at America and a lot of um, confusion, I guess, as to what is driving a lot of the aggression over there from, from New Zealanders. We don't understand a lot of what, what goes on in there. We only, we only hear from it through the media. That's the only lens that we get. You mean you don't understand why we have, in seven days, we've had seven mass, mass shootings? Things are getting back to normal, I guess. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah COVID's starting to, the, the COVID effect on the shooting sprees is starting to wear off. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to hear you say you don't understand because, well, that I gives, sure don't understand. That gives, that gives us hope <laughs> that it's yeah. not that way everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think even Canada, it, you know, I don't think the gun laws are so different in Canada, uh, but there's not the uh, mass shootings, the incidents of it, or the high incidents of it like there is here. Yeah, we've had we, I, we've had a few, but uh, yeah, I, I know that hand, I know that apparently we have larger number of guns, but that's because of a lot of hunting and stuff. And I don't think small arms and weapons, you know, you know, the multiple ones that can shoot a machine. You don't need a machine gun to hunt a deer, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, in a sense, you know, I feel similar to, to Dan in New Zealand. We're, we're we're very much see ourselves in peacekeeping role. So if we're involved with military, it's it's the UN. We're going out to try and bring peace. Yeah. But you're, but I mean, I've had a couple of friends, like I had a friend who was a pastor and the next thing I knew he joined the military. Now I always think people do it to get a good pension and free university. <laughs> it, it, again, in the Anabaptist circles, it's frowned upon. You start talking about free college and they're going to start calling you a socialist here. When they do free college all the time, if you're willing to kill people <laughs> or die, you know, or put your life on the line and die. I think Dan, I, there's no easy answer. And we, we spend a lot of time trying to figure it out ourselves, but the, the myth of redemptive violence is very powerful in this country. And the idea of, of manifest destiny, that God has given us this place, the whole country is, is really, it was founded on exploitative principles. I, I'm, I'm reading Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an, anti-racist. How to be an Anti-Racist. And I'm um, taking a, a training, a seven-week training at work, and we're talking about racism and how much violence and slavery have been the means by which capitalism has functioned. I think it's, I, I think it's tied to the extreme capitalist agenda. What Tim said about finding different ways to peace, seeing the UN as a role in America, that's not how you do peace. You do peace through superior firepower. We have a presence in 200 some odd countries. It's an empire mentality. This is just the latest empire. And so it's just not question. You don't question that being always on the cusp of making war is how you man- manage peace. Now, that's all the world thinks that. 
but I don't think anybody believes that quite as virulently as we do in this country. It's part of who we are. We're, we're kind of stuck in the cycle too of like, once you uh, achieve power, you have to maintain it. Sure. That's the empire so, thing, right? Whatever cost that is. And then it starts to bleed into the society and things like that. So we're just seeing that starting to work itself out in different ways. But yeah, in order to have this idea of peace be present nationally, you have to lay down that power. And that's just not. The religious language, this is what I tried to hit in an article I wrote a few years ago on Colin Kaepernick. What Colin Kaepernick was doing was undermining the national religion. He was blaspheming the national religion. Freedom is the salvation that we provide. But it, have you noticed that every single time, every single military we action we do, it's about protecting our freedom. Every military person is protecting our freedom, no matter what they're doing. You may be able to make a good argument for military presence somewhere, but I have a hard time understanding how is a military base in Turkey or a military base in Greece protecting my freedom? Which of my freedoms are being threatened in Greece? But that's part of the mythology. Everything we do is justified. With Hauerwas in a call for the abolition of war, he's not saying, here, let's try to make you pacifists. He's saying, let's, if you're going to be just war people, let's try to make you do just war. Are you going to justify your war? Then justify it. But in America, we don't justify war. We make war and then we say, well, we made war, so it must be just because it's protecting our freedom. Every violence we do is automatically justified under the guise of protecting freedom. But no one ever stops and goes, how is this protecting our freedom? You know, the 15 countries, the highest military spending, $732 billion last in 2019. Like those numbers are just staggering. And then China is behind you at 261. So almost a third of what the U.S. spends. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just saying like, you know, and I know there's a story. What could we do with that money? You know, it's just mind boggling, isn't it though? That's a whole nother piece of it. And that's why I think Paul, you mentioned it's So it's racism and it's classism. It's, you know, it's all, it's all connected. And boy, yeah. How did that, how did this happen? <laughs> Bad theology has certainly played a huge role in this. I mean, we're surrounded by it here that you can't hardly do Christianity in any kind of New Testament sense without, I mean, like we're all discussing. I think you can see it shifting. I don't know if you all read the article on the cleansing of the temple. He traces the history of that interpretation. You know, for 200, 300 years, nobody presumed that was violent because, of course, the church was pacifist. It was nonviolent. And so no one read that. There, there were different interpretive strategies. Origen is reading it allegorically. Others are just saying, you know, going in and, you know, you go into the Greek and, you know, I don't know if you've seen the pictures by Rembrandt. There's a little old lady cowering and Jesus is beating her over the head, you know. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is Indiana Jesus with the big bull whip. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what people have done with that Beginning with Augustine, he is the first that is using the cleansing of the temple as a justification for the violence of the church. Again, of course, the church was wedded to the state and to the sword in the person of the emperor, and that then is going to show itself in 1,500 years of finding violence. I guess that you're just going to find it wherever you can. 
that and Jesus commanding them, oh, do you have a sword? Which I think just points to the desperation of this interpretive strategy. You're going to find it. You know, I, I don't guess it would have mattered what was there. Clearly, what you do not have is the use of hand grenades, bazookas. That's literally what people are going to begin to justify on the basis of the cleansing of the temple. They say, well, look, Jesus is violent. It's almost so such a strong thing that everything is warped, I'm afraid, in the wake of the Constantinian shift. If you think of the apocalyptic view, too, is that Jesus came as a lamb the first time, but the second time he's coming back as a lion. So his violence is going to be absolutely mega coming on the, you know, the other side. So he's, a, he's violent on both ends, so to speak, you know, with this interpretation. Soft in the middle and violent on both ends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like the old Kung Fu series, you know. You could beat up David Carradine for the first 30 minutes of the show. You could do anything to David Carradine. But boy, you better not miss, mess with him the last 10 minutes of the show because he's going to get you. <laughs> he'll just do his karate thing and just beat everybody up. And we all know that Revelation is a book about violence. Uh, that's your cue, Jay. <laughs> I was hoping that that wasn't what you were concluding. Thomas Yoder, uh, Newfield. The book is excellent. If you ever get a chance to pick it up, it's uh, um, Killing Enmity is the book. And so there's oh, just a section of the last chapter and it's i think it's it's a it's a brilliant takedown of that that version of Re revelation and i should tell you and i've and alan's probably heard me tell this story and maybe um everybody has so if so i apologize but well it's worth telling again because dan doesn't remember that you told it last okay so week. yeah and and i should i i, I don't mean to be i don't mean to be uh, it's a great, good story great, but there's a guy, it was a guy in my church I was preaching to that was, um, he's Irish, just uh, had the brogue. I think he'd been part of the NRA at one point. He was, he was as mean. He was, came to church drunk. I mean, it was, the stereotypes were, were profound. You mean the IRA? Uh, NRA, IRA. I'm sure he was part of the NRA, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's all the same. It's got the, you know, guns. But he would come to church and be, be pretty mad and he he got tired of me quick and i think he would come to church for a couple weeks and then he'd leave for a month or so and his wife would come without him and then he'd get liquored up and come to church and start shouting at me while i was preaching i was preaching about i was preaching through the gospels and he kept wanting me to preach revelation why don't you preach revelation i was i said i don't preach revelation because it's too hard and then he got really mad at me and got physical with me one day about preaching revelation i said if i preach revelation you're not going to like it but I said, I'll preach Revelation. I'm going to do one sermon on Revelation. I used this, this chapter. And Neufeld, the whole thing turns on chapter 5. Because, yeah, it looks like that Revelation is Jesus coming back like a lion. But the whole vision that John has is a message to these seven churches about them being faithful during persecution. You're being persecuted. You're being persecuted. You're dying. It's a message to people who are crying out, when's Jesus going to win this thing? In chapter five, it all turns. He's got this scroll and there's nobody who's worthy to read the scroll. And he says, here's the scroll. And John has a complete existential crisis, he cries and cries because nobody's worthy to read the scroll. And the angel says, look, the, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, he's worthy to read a scroll. Now, before I get to this, you got to know that this guy had interrupted me a couple weeks prior, and he'd said, Jesus is coming back like a lion in Revelation. 
you're making him out to be a lamb. But I said, yeah, he's a lamb. He goes, well, yeah, it was a lamb. Revelation 5 says, so John turns and looks to see the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. And instead I saw a slain lamb. And so for Newfeld, the message is, yes, he is the lion. The lion conquers by being slain. And therefore the rest of the message is, you will also conquer the powers by being slain. So it's, we know the idea that Jesus is coming back to kick some butt this time, that works really great for, who's the guy that, that said, I, I don't want a Jesus I can beat up? Mark Driscoll. Of course, that's the story of the Gospels. He came and we beat him up. The irony is is profound. But he goes on and says, you know, he breaks down some more of the, the symbolism and says, so yeah, you've got this vision of Jesus coming on a white horse and he's got an iron scepter and he's got a sword and his robe is covered with blood. But whose blood is it? Is it the blood of his enemies or is it his own blood? And the sword's in his mouth. Have you ever seen anybody swashbuckle like this? That's, that's Chuck, not. Chuck Norris. Yeah, Chuck could do it. it. Yeah. Chuck could do it. Maybe, maybe Batman in a new movie yeah. in a Snyder Cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. So if you're going to get violence out of the New Testament, there's just a limited number of places. Once you get the, there is the shift. I mean, obviously it's there in the Sermon on the Mount. It's there in, in who Jesus is. It's just spread throughout, you know, the gospel message, the gospels, and then in the epistles is continually tied to peace. I mean, start looking for the word peace. It is a message of peace. And that's what we've lost. That's the bizarre thing in a Constantinian shift that I think culminates in the Reformation. We've lost it more than they lost it. Because even in the Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, for 1,500 years, peace was still normative. But we've lost even that normativity. So that even to hear the message of peace, as we're talking about it, has become for people in the wake of the Reformation a strange, almost a, a offensive message. Well, it is offensive. I'm saying all this on Sunday, I preached in front of the American flag, and I quoted Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower describes, you know, he was at West Point the first day, and he was discouraged and down. Then they went out, and they were inducted as cadets, and he looked up there, and the American flag was flying, and he said, I knew that I belonged to the flag. That key moment in his life, he said, I'll never forget. The point is, oh, this is pure idolatry. And the reason that we put flags in places of worship, that we've got this idol, uh, alternative system of sacrifice, and we install it in a place of worship because it is a, it, it's not simply that it's a competing system, it's co-opted our understanding of the sacrifice of Christ. So that now when we use the language of freedom, we use the language of sacrifice, you can almost go through the New Testament. That, that language, I think even the language of love, has been co-opted by this other religion. That's a harsh way to say it, but I, and, and I don't know that I would put it that way except on unique occasions because it'll get you killed. But I think it's the truth. This is the message that will get you killed. Yeah. This is idle toppling. You go back to Gideon knocking over the Asherah pole, you know. What happened then? His own dad got mad. Hey, that's our Asherah pole. <laughs> we talked about trampling on things people hold sacred. 
you can't help it. You're going to step on and you want to do it in a way that you're not the, the aggressor. But at the same time, there's, there's very little about the message that doesn't strike at the heart of that religion. This is the antithesis of that religion. The, the cross and the flag couldn't be more antithetical to one another. And I'm, and I'm not just saying the American flag, but a national flag. No matter how not as militaristic as your nation is, it's still violent. <laughs> um, that's what that's will get you killed. And it'll, give you a, a, it'll make your church small. We're not going to make peace. We're not going to convince the nation to be something different than it was, than it is. The abolition of war takes place in the church by definition. Part of the helpful thing of tying sin and, you know, just what is sin? It's violence. But if you understand that the big picture of violence can be that Cartesian sense in which you're pitted against yourself, I think, you know, you're establishing yourself. Violence can be forms of self-masochism or what we would even call self-sacrifice in a bad way. Uh, I think that sin is violent. In other words, the same principle applies, that once you invest life in this system, well, the system may not be nationalism. It may just be your own egotistical, and ego is the right word because that's the word that Paul uses, that we've invested in, you know, whatever it is you've invested, but it's ultimately life that you've invested, that once you have sacrificed to the system, once you've invested in it, that in a sense creates the reality. That is, obviously, that's idolatry, that's war, but I think it's almost a, a neat way to understand, oh, but that's just what we always do. That's what we're all involved in, is salvation systems idolatrous desire, which is what Paul is describing, the covetousness or the desire that we all experience is deceived. That is, it's a first order experience of deception. That we're talking about something that we may not experience cognitively, but we've all experienced it. We all know this thing because our desire would be to invest our life in a thing that is is deadly, that takes our life. And so once you say Jesus defeated sin, well, that's the same thing as saying he abolished war. How could you object to that? That has he really defeated sin? Maybe, you know, I always wonder, I, I, I'm never quite sure what's uh, harder to understand, the abolishing of war or the abolishing of our own personal struggle. Oh, lots, lots to think about and chew on. Thank you, guys. Trenton, good to see you. Yeah, have a good night. No, thanks, guys. That's really good. I'm going to look at that. Yeah, you definitely should. It it. He's good as long as he's reading. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When he stops, he's ah ah yeah. Ah, ah. <laughs> it's a little overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. But if he's right, reading what he's written, it's great. It's, uh, it's great, yeah. man. It's pithy. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. Goodbye, me. All right. Good night. Bye, guys. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, 
please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.